Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John once again, picking up where we left off last week, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, verses 12 through 20. There is in Venezuela a place called Guacharo Cave National Park. Any of you ever been there? At my 9.30 service, I had several. I hear it's very popular. But this place is called Guacharo Cave National Park because it is the home to this rare type of bird, the Guacharo. About 15,000 of them live there. And what makes these birds different from every other species of bird on the planet is the fact that these are nocturnal animals like bats. They live inside of that cave in the darkness all day, every day. They go out in the dark part of the night to look for fruits or berries. They return before sunrise. From the time the guacharo is hatched until the time that it dies, it may never see the light of day. The guacharo lives its entire life in darkness. Well, how many of you understand that it's not just a rare bird in South America that lives its entire life in darkness? That can be said of many people as well. And the sad truth is that the average person in the world today, they actively live in a state of moral and spiritual darkness. First John says that the man or woman without Christ lives in darkness, they walk in darkness, and they are blinded by darkness. Colossians chapter 1 says they are under the power of darkness. Ephesians 5 says they do the works of darkness. Jesus said in John 3 that the typical person prefers darkness over the light because their deeds are evil. And in John 12, he said that he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Boy, that, doesn't that seem to describe the world that we live in today? And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that yes, the world is dark and is getting darker. Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came from heaven to earth and he came into this dark world and he made in our scripture this morning one of the greatest statements, one of the most consequential statements that any man or woman ever spoke. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Not, I am a light in the world, as if he's one of many. He said, I am the light of the world. What an incredible statement. This is one of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We've seen the first. He said, I am the bread of life. In our passage this morning, he said, 
I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the true vine. Again and again in John's gospel, Jesus makes these I am statements about himself, and every time he did so, it was a reminder of Exodus chapter 3, that great story of Moses when he encountered God through that burning bush, and God revealed his name to his servant and said, I am the I am. And the very fact that Jesus would take that holy name of God and he would apply it to himself over and over again was without a doubt a claim to deity and everyone understood it to be so. And so this morning we're going to look at that statement, I am the light of the world, and see what that means. We're going to learn a few things about this light that Christ brings into our world and into our lives. And there are four things about this light that I want to point out to you. First of all, I want to talk about the reality of Jesus' light. The reality of Jesus' light. Verse 12 is the key verse for this entire passage, and everything else we're going to read points back to this. So I'm going to spend most of my time this morning on this first verse, on this first point. But I want us to read verse 12 out loud together. Say it with me. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, that statement all by itself is so significant, and it is so powerful. And yet, once again, when we remember the context, and when we remember even the moment in which Jesus made this statement and what was happening in that moment, it becomes all the more significant to us. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles had just ended the day before. And we've been in John 7 and 8 for a while now. You certainly should know by now the Feast of Tabernacles was that week-long celebration that came once a year when thousands of Jews came to Jerusalem and they literally went camping in and around Jerusalem. They literally lived in tents and they did so as a reminder of that time when their forefathers wandered in the desert those 40 years and they literally lived in tents that time in between the exodus from Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. Now, it's very interesting that later on in verse 20, the text tells us that when Jesus made this statement, I am the light of the world, he made it in the treasury. This was the place where the people would come and they would drop off their tithes and their offerings. 
It was also called the women's court because this was that part of the temple where the women would gather to worship and to pray. But it was here in the treasury, in the women's court, that something very meaningful took place during that Feast of Tabernacles. It was here in that particular court where Jesus stood when he made that statement. They had these four gigantic lanterns. Each one was fed by a tank containing 62 liters of oil, which they would burn every night. And every single night during this Feast of Tabernacles, they would light these gigantic lanterns, and they produced so much light. Historians say that they not only filled the women's court, they not only filled the entire temple, but the light that came from that place and from those lamps was so bright, it is said that it touched every single home in Jerusalem. And every single night during that Feast of Tabernacles, they would fill those tanks with oil and they would light those wicks and they would begin to burn those lamps and the men would invade the women's court and they would sing and they would dance and they would praise God and this happened all night long every night of the week you say why did they do that well, they did this as a reminder of a certain part of that story when they were wandering through the wilderness and living in tents. That part of the story that says God led his people all of those years. And how did he do it? He did so with what is called a cloud, a pillar of cloud during the daytime. And that became, the Bible says, a pillar of fire at night. And for 40 years, they went wherever the cloud or the fire led them. When it moved, they moved. They went where it went. And when it stopped, they stopped. And they stayed as long as it stayed. And all of that time, they knew exactly where God wanted them to go, where he wanted them to be. Because all that time, God was leading them. He was leading them with that cloud by day and that fire by night. And so this cloud, this glorious cloud and this fire, it represented the presence of God with them that all, at all times. It was also a picture of something else. It was also a picture of that promise that God had given them to send them the Messiah because as you look at the numerous messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, you will notice that again and again this future Messiah who was promised is likened to light. For example, Isaiah 49 verse 6, God is speaking about the Messiah who was to come and he said, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And so when they would light those lamps in the women's court of the temple, and when they would fill that place with light, it was a reminder to them that God had promised that one day he would send to them the true light. Now we fast forward to John chapter 8, verse 12. And again, it is the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. What do you do with the lights when the celebration is over? Think about Christmas. Some of you have lights that you hang outside of your house. And then maybe the day after Christmas or the week after Christmas, what do you do? The lights come down. If you leave your Christmas lights up all year, I love you, but I do not know you. Just saying, okay? The celebration ends. The lights come down. They go back in the attic. They go back in the shed. The feast just ended. You understand what this means? Those lights that they had been enjoying all week long, those lights weren't shining anymore. And it was at that moment when those lights stopped shining that Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. It's as if he's saying, that's me. I am the presence of God with you. I am that Messiah who was promised. And those lights in the women's court, they shine one week, but my light is always shining. And the light of those lamps is extinguished, but my light never goes out. This is the context of that statement. And notice that Jesus did not say, I am the light of Israel. Although he could have said that. It would have been true. But he didn't say, I am the light of Israel. Here he said, I am the light of the world. Meaning this light is for everyone. In John 1, 9, he is called the true light, which lights every man in the world. Now hear me carefully. That does not mean that every person is saved. But that does mean that every person, somehow, to some extent, receives this light, has the opportunity to respond to this light. And when a person responds to the light that God gives them, you know what happens? They get more light. Imagine you are in a forest and maybe there's been an accident. Maybe you have fallen. Maybe you've broken a leg, but you are trapped. You cannot escape. You need someone to rescue you. And you wonder if anyone's ever coming. And then at night, in the darkest part of the night, you can't help but notice that the darkness is penetrated by a single light. And you begin to cry out to that light. And as you cry out to that light, you notice that light starts to come your way. You notice that light, it starts to get, get bigger and it starts to get brighter. And you cry out all the more and eventually that light reaches you. And when that light reaches you, you discover the person who's holding that light all along was your brother who came to rescue you. Well, now 
imagine we live in a world of darkness jesus is the light his light the bible says shines on every man some are content to ignore it some prefer the darkness but those who will welcome the light they receive more light and eventually when that light reaches them they discover that jesus himself is that light but because jesus could say i am the light of the world that means that every person is accountable for how they respond to that light no one can claim that the light god gave them was not enough we are all as paul said in romans 1 without excuse well notice jesus's next statement there in verse 12 he who follows me shall not walk in darkness now notice it is assumed that the one who comes to christ and the one who believes places their faith in christ what do they do it is assumed that such a person follows him to believe is to follow to do one is to do the other and just as the Israelites, for 40 years, they followed that cloud. They followed that fire wherever it went. Likewise, the believer follows Christ. I was reading this past week where there was one Greek scholar. He was talking about that word to follow and what it means in verse 12 to follow Jesus. He said that word follow had four uses in the first century he said it was used to describe the soldier following his captain it was used to describe the slave following the orders of his master it was used to describe the person who was following the advice of his counselor and he said it was used of the citizen following the laws of his country and when i thought about that and when i come to verse 12 and when jesus says he who follows me you know what i think jesus had all of the above in mind when we follow christ that means we follow his orders we follow his direction we follow his wisdom his counsel we follow his laws we allow him to lead us in our decisions and our beliefs and our values and in our lifestyle to believe him is to follow him and jesus said this person the one who is following him notice he will not walk in darkness the person following christ has light and because they have light because they're in the light they can see now who they are and where they are and where they are going all of life takes on new meaning and jesus said he'll not walk in darkness and i love this last part he said he will have the light of life isn't that beautiful? The light of life. This light that Jesus is offering to the world, it is a quality of life in which he fills our lives 
with hope and love and peace and joy. And when the believer possesses this kind of light, when this light is displayed in his or her life, the world cannot help but notice. And so when we read this, we have to ask ourselves the question, does the world really see this light in us? Is this light, the light of life, is it evident to those who are around us? Have we allowed our lights to become hidden? As Jesus said in Matthew 5, no one lights a candle and puts it under a bushel. Have we allowed the bushel of sin to hide that light or are we allowing it to truly shine in us? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see the reality of Jesus' light, but then as we move through these next few verses, we also see the validity of Jesus' light. We see the validity of Jesus' light. Look at verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus just made this very major claim, I am the light of the world. And so now they are disputing him, they're trying to discredit him, and they say, Jesus, that cannot be true. And we know that cannot be true because you're testifying for yourself. In other words, you don't have any corroborating witnesses. They were referring to Deuteronomy chapter 19 in which the Word of God says that for a person's testimony to be considered valid... Their testimony had to be corroborated by other witnesses. It took two witnesses for that person's testimony to be valid. And that much was, in fact, true. On that point, they were right. But there was one problem. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from. Now, where did he come from? He already said that he came down from heaven. That was a claim of divinity. And where I am going, where is Jesus going? He's returning to the Father. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You see, they quoted this law about two witnesses being required, but the very law requiring two witnesses pertained to human disputes in human courts it took more than the witness of just one person speaking for himself for it to be considered true but these pharisees forgot something god never needs corroborating witnesses for his words to be true when god speaks he never needs anyone to back up what he says Romans 3 says, let God be true and every man a liar. What God says is true even if everyone else rejects it. Well, Jesus knew who he was as the Son of God. Therefore, he knew his witness was true even when he spoke for himself. But the Pharisees did not know who he was. They failed to recognize him 
And here is why. Look at verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Here's the real problem. They judged Jesus. And when they judged him, they judged him according to the flesh, according to how he appeared on the outside. When they looked at Jesus, you know what they saw? They saw a poor Jewish carpenter who had all the markings of poverty, I'm sure, on his face, the calluses on his hands. They saw a man who grew up in Galilee, which they considered the wrong side of the tracks. They saw a man who had no formal training, no one, someone who had never been to any of their schools or never had been to any of their seminaries. They saw a man who was homeless. He probably looked homeless. He probably smelled homeless. And there was nothing whatsoever about the outer appearance of Jesus that when they saw him said, look, the Messiah Savior, Son of God, the light of the world. And for them to see Jesus for who he was, they were going to have to look beyond the surface. And because they were like so many people in the world today, because they were so focused on the outside appearance, they missed the real Jesus. Now, the ironic thing is, if they had paid attention to the Scriptures, they would have known that when the Messiah came, He would come in this way. You remember what Isaiah 53 said, verse 2? He has no form of comeliness, and when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. Isaiah is talking about what will be the outer appearance of the Messiah when he comes. And he said, when God sends the Savior, you're not going to look at his form. You're not going to look at his outer appearance and, and see anything that is attractive, anything that is impressive about his appearance. By the way, there is a principle here. There's a very important lesson for us that we can apply here as well. Sometimes... Sometimes wisdom comes packaged in simplicity. And sometimes strength comes packaged in weakness. And sometimes looks can be deceiving. And sometimes we have to look beyond the surface. And if we don't look beyond the surface, we will miss what God is trying to teach us. Through that person. And if these Pharisees would have only looked beyond the surface, you know what they would have seen? They would have seen his power over nature. If they had looked beyond the surface, they would have seen his authority over demons. If they had looked beyond the surface, they would have seen his love for sinners and his compassion for hurting people. If they would have looked beyond the surface, they would have seen how Jesus humbled himself and how he served others. If they would have just looked beyond the surface, they would have seen that, yes, Jesus really is the light of the world. So we see the, the validity of his light, but we also see the testimony of Jesus' light. Look at verse 16. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, 
but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Now, in the verses before, Jesus denied that he needed someone else's collaboration in order for his witness to be true. But now, it's as if Jesus is saying, you know what, okay, sure, let's play this game You want two witnesses, the same law that says that the witness of one man by himself is not true. It also says that the witness of two people uh, is true. And so you want two witnesses, I'll give you two witnesses. I'm one, and my father is the second. And of course, when he referred to his father, he was referring to God. He said, my father gives testimony that my words are true. Now look at verse 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? This was probably an underhanded insult. Some of them no doubt knew that his mother Mary was not married when she conceived. We know that she conceived by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was virgin born. But it's kind of like when they ask that question, where is your father? That's kind of a slap in the face. It's kind of like they're accusing Jesus of being illegitimate. Go back to verse 19. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Now these were trained religious leaders. But Jesus said to them, You do not know me. You do not know my father. You do not know God. Now remember, it is possible, it is very possible for someone to know the law of God without knowing the God of the law. Did you know that? These men could cite the scriptures, but when God himself came down and stood before him, they did not recognize him. And because they did not know the Father, they could not hear the witness of the Father bearing witness on behalf of His Son. Now, when we read this, when Jesus talks about His Father bearing witness for Him, the big question we have to ask is, okay, how exactly does that work? In what way does God the Father bear witness for God the Son here? And there can be any number of ways. I would say that God the Father bears witness witness through the scriptures and every prophecy that Jesus filled fulfilled hundreds of prophecies about Jesus and when he would come and what he would be like and what he would do and the place of his birth and the events of his life and all of these things that were fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Christ. This was in a sense the father testifying on behalf of the son. I think you could say that the life that Jesus lived and the works that Jesus performed, that this was that testimony of the Father for the Son. For example, when Jesus told the lame to walk, they walked. When he told the storm to cease, it ceased. When he told the dead to rise, they rose. When he told demons to flee, they fled. All of this really was the testimony of the Father on behalf of the Son, but more than anything else, the Father's testimony of the Son came when Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. 
Because Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that God declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. How did God declare Jesus to be the Son of God? He said, by the resurrection from the dead. More than anything else, the resurrection is God's testimony on behalf of Jesus that he really is who he claimed to be, that he really is the Savior, Messiah, the Son of God, and yes, he is the light of the world. One more thing about this light that we notice. We also see the invincibility of Jesus' light. The invincibility of his light. Look at verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Jesus just made this claim. He claimed to be the light of the world. And meanwhile, he is surrounded by all of these people who want more than anything else to put that light out. His enemies want him dead. They are planning and they are conspiring and they are plotting against him. And the chapter before, they sent officials to arrest him without success. Earlier in this chapter, they tried to trap him without success. And meanwhile, here is Jesus, the man they're after. And what's he doing? He's right there in front of them. He's teaching publicly in the temple. And they could not lay a hand on him. They could not do anything about it. Why not? For his hour had not yet come. His hour would come six months later. But until then, it's as if they were bound by the invisible chains of the will of God. It's as if they were bound by the sovereignty of God. Jesus was right there, and they could not touch him. Now, folks, it ought to really encourage us to know that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can touch our lives that does not first pass through the filter of God's sovereign hand. And if God does allow something difficult or painful to touch us, that means he has a purpose for it and he will use it. But here is Jesus in John chapter 8. He claims to be the light of the world. He's surrounded by all of his enemies, and yet all of the darkness in the world was not able to extinguish the light of Jesus in John 8. And all of the darkness in the world is not enough to extinguish the light of one born-again child of God in whom the light of Jesus shines. You realize this is how it works? Do you realize... This is how God goes about growing his kingdom. Just people following Jesus, experiencing that light, and then demonstrating that light. Oh, listen, you don't have to have great resources. 
You don't have to be a person of great earthly influence. And you don't have to be the most gifted. And you don't have to be the most talented. If you'll just follow him. If you will follow him, Jesus said, the one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. If you will follow him, your light will shine and the world will notice. And that light of Christ in you will be invincible. Would you join me as we take a moment as we pray? Oh God, how we thank you for the light of Christ, Jesus, the light of the world, and that he promised that whosoever follows him, if we simply follow him as Savior and Lord, we will have the light of life in us. That eternal life, that abundant life will be like a light that is shining that the world will see. And oh God, this is what we want to see happening in our lives individually and in this church as well. And so we do ask you right now to show us if there's anything that we've allowed in our lives that would hide or obscure that light, we don't want our candlestick to be under a bushel, but we want it to give light to all. And we remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Oh, that's our desire, that the world would see your light in us and that you would receive the glory. God, show us if there's anything that we simply need to confess to you today that would hide or obscure that light. And God, I pray for that one, if there is a man or woman here today who needs to come to Christ to follow him. The call of Christ to his own disciples was summarized in those two words, follow me, follow me. And maybe this morning you're calling someone here today to follow Jesus, to take that first step of following Jesus as Savior and Lord by simply trusting Him, believing in Him, and confessing Him as Lord of their lives. And so, Father, if that is your will for any man or woman here today, they need to take that step. I pray that this would be their day of salvation. Maybe they came here today in the dark Maybe they lived their whole lives in spiritual darkness. How I pray that today they would come to the light and experience that light of Christ. Father, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name.